0: Everybody, welcome back to Legal Ease. I'm your host, Mark Houston II, Esquire, and you're tuned in to Season Two, Episode Two. Now, today is April 11th, 2021. Spring is in full swing. No pun intended, obviously, with baseball season. But as a reminder, now nah, this ain't your favorite argumentative sports cast or gossip site, and this definitely ain't your professor's podcast. This is a legal business perspective coupled with the true love of sport, dictated to the culture, for the culture, by a sports attorney. And as a general disclaimer, the information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. Now enough of the formalities, you know we gotta start another episode with another heat check. So for tonight's episode, I'm wearing the Puma the Hundreds Future Rider Collab. Now, with the heat check, we got a little surprise for you today. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit about collabs and a big case that popped up. So, be sure you got your heat on, because you're definitely going to need to check in for this episode. Now, this week's shout-out, again, we have two individuals to shout-out. We have Hadiki Matsayuma. Who became the first Japanese Masters Champion. Who won with a 10 under par score. Beast. The next is Akil Badu. From the Detroit Tigers. Who's a Rule 5 player. And for those that don't know. The Rule 5 is a rule that keeps teams from essentially stockpiling talent. So they have to give them up at a certain point. He was drafted in December's Rule 5 draft. Recently made MLB history. By hitting a homer. In his very first pitch, very first MLB at pitch, or at bat. And then, also in his second game, he hit another homer. So, he made franchise history with the Tigers by being the first player for that franchise to hit two homers in his first two games. Awesome. Moving right along to On This Day in Sports History. In 1907, in New York, an umpire by the name of Bill Clem He caught a forfeit in favor of the Phillies when Giants fans disrupted play by throwing snowballs. I guess that was back when it actually snowed during the spring. In 1921, the first live sporting event was held. The first live sports event on radio took place. This happened on KDKA radio. And the event was a boxing match between Johnny Ray and Johnny Dundee. I wonder who won that one. In 1947, Jackie Robinson became the first black player in Major League Baseball history. He played an exhibition game for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And in 1966, Emmett Ashford became the first African American Major League umpire. And cut. All right, well, let's get right into it. So today we're gonna be talking about a big case that we've seen that has affected the sneaker collab industry. Uh, What we'll be talking about is the Nike v. Mischief product studio case, which involves Little Nas X. Now, to give a little background, Nike recently sued Mischief Products, uh, which had an unofficial collab with Lil Nas X. Now the shoes that came out were a customized Air Max 97, which were dubbed the Lil Nas X Satan shoes. They also came out with a new video that Lil Nas X uh, released. Um, sort of has like some demonic, satanic, uh, you know, sort of theme throughout it, right? Now these shoes came out. Uh, the shoes feature a bronze pentagram, the number 666, and a small amount of human blood. Now, it's pretty interesting. You guys can take a look at it, Uh, you know, look it up if you want. Um, Obviously, it's a Nike shoe. Uh, They threw some, you know, some customization stuff on there. You know, little customization stuff. Doesn't seem like it's that big a deal, except it landed Mischief in a lot of trouble. Now, Mischief was sued recently by Nike in a four-part, four-claim, Complaint that was filed in the Eastern District of New York. Now, Nike sued Mischief Product for one, trademark infringement in violation of 15 USC Section 1114, two, false designation of origin slash unfair competition in violation of 15 USC Section 1125A, three, trademark dilution in violation of 15 USC Section 1125C. And four, common law trademark, infringement and unfair competition. Now, we got a treat for you today. You won't just hear me rap about it. We have a special guest. Our special guest, Zach Kurtz of the sneaker law firm out of New York City will be joining us. And we'll delve into that, delve into all the details momentarily. So let's get right to it hey zach so thanks for joining us here on athlegal ease just like every other episode we got to start off with a heat check heat check one two so for tonight's episode i'm wearing the puma hundreds future rider collab what are you wearing
1: Ooh, I went
0: old school on you. I got
1: the Yeezy 350
0: V1 Turtle Dove. Wow, fire. It's a lot of heat on the line right now. So you you know we got a lot of pressure. We got a lot to show today. So let's get right into it. All right, so here we are with Zach Kurtz, the sneaker attorney out of New York City. How are you today, Zach?
1: Good, good. Thanks for asking, Mark i cool.
0: well. So we really appreciate, you know, you being here with us today. Uh, you know, we love to, you know, uh, you know share the wealth of knowledge that, you know, we've been able to procure. And so today, since we have you on the line, since we love sneakers, we love the collabs, we'd love to learn a little bit more about this little Nas X uh, Nike lawsuit uh, that we just saw sort of uh, become uh, – it it blew up and then it you know it kind of was you know washed under the rug uh, and was settled pretty recently Uh, so we saw it filed here in the uh, Eastern District of New York uh, and this is Nike v mischief product studio Inc now there were four different claims we had here we had one for trademark infringement we had one for false designation of origin We had a third for trademark dilution, and we also had a fourth common law trademark infringement claim. Now, Zach, uh, since we got you here, you're an expert. We'd love for you to run down uh, the different claims of those uh, different claims, the different elements of those claims, if you will, uh, and sort of give us some sort of baseline understanding of where we are here.
1: Yeah, sure. No problem. Uh, yeah, so you said it exactly. It was a crazy two weeks. <laughs> it happened quick, uh, as soon as the, the sneaker got announced. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of hype building up and building up, and Nike tried to make a statement, uh, just to sort of distance themselves away uh, from the state shoe And the next thing you know, boom, a lawsuit, and two weeks later, it's done. So I was hoping for a lot more fireworks, and we ended up settling quickly.
0: Yeah, we saw that uh, now. You know, it. Do you think the, the the way this case settled, was it, you know, in the best interest of Nike or perhaps the defendant who was, you know, at fault here?
1: Yeah, jumping to that, I think Mischief got the better deal out of everything here. Uh, to me, it looked like it was a very sophisticated plan. Uh, from what I read, it looked like Mischief clearly spoke to their attorneys beforehand right. and knew what they were doing when creating the shoe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the facts show that as soon as the shoe dropped on Monday, it sold out in Less than a minute. And, you know, what usually doesn't happen is, is they wait around for the sneakers. They don't instantly send them. But what happened here is the exact opposite. <laughs> they sold the shoes, they shipped them out. And from what the records say, 665 of the 666 pairs of shoes were uh, shipped and delivered. Uh, and all Mischief has is one pair left. Wow. So it was crazy. And it, to me, it looked like a very sophisticated plan. And Mischief knew what they were doing, trying to get it out of the way. And, uh, probably even could have suspected that Nike would have brought a lawsuit. Right. Uh, and, you know, we don't know if they settled for any money or how much they did. I would hope that they did. Hopefully. Uh, if they didn't, then Nike, yeah, exactly. If they didn't, Nike got, definitely did not get the better of it, in my
0: opinion. Right. And so, you know, from the articles that I've been reading, it seems as though these Little Nas X Satan shoes is what they're called, uh, was a modified variation of the Air Max 97s. They cost around 1000 18 bucks. So, I mean, if you say they sold 665 or so of those, I mean, wow, 60,000 bucks, you know, for an infringed, uh, you know, product is interesting.
1: Yeah, exactly. And even with that price tag, they ended up selling out in less than a minute.
0: Wow, that's Uh, insane. Yeah,
1: go, go. It really is.
0: Okay, Zach, so back to this Nike V Mischief Product Studio Inc. We had four claims. Can you break those down for us?
1: Yeah, so uh I guess we have trademark infringement as well as which is uh federal trademark infringement and then we have the common law trademark infringement. Mm-hmm. And what Nike is saying there is essentially uh that Mischief used Nike's swoosh logo as well as all other Nike trademarks uh without their permission and that they are causing uh the marketplace to, you know, have okay, not really know if this is a Nike shoe or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that they took a base of a 97 Air Max and they just altered it, uh, they clearly have a Nike product. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what uh, the federal trademark violation as well as the common law claims are related to that. Uh, okay. Trademark infringement. We also have a false designation of origin, unfair competition, as well as dilution. Mm-hmm. And a false designation of origin was the fact that they were selling this collab, to, Mischief Lil Nas collab, mm-hmm. uh, without Nike's permission. And as you know, a lot of people, uh, in the complaint, they had a list of, uh, customers who were confused and thought right. this was a Nike collab. Right. And it clearly wasn't. Right. So that's what that claim is relating to. And the dilution, dilution is, uh, the, the fact that this is a Satan sneaker or deemed a D&D Satan sneaker. And so many people do not like Satan, uh, as you can see, right. By <laughs> the complaints, <laughs> which rightfully <laughs> so. Uh, so as you can see by the complaint, they have literally—it looks like Nike just picked the the craziest uh, <laughs> the craziest comments and put a list on there. Of yes, that there, was <laughs> as, there was dilution, and since Nike clearly has a famous mark, uh, you know they might as well throw it in there. Right. All right. Uh, but yeah, all it comes—all this comes down to the fact that they took that base Air Max ninety seven shoe and they altered it, they uh, materially altered it, and what Mischief was claiming is. You know they, they altered it for a first amendment parody to make fun of the collab culture and big brands like Nike.
0: Right, I saw uh, just from a little bit of the research that I did that uh, the same product studio they released another shoe uh, that was like the Jesus collab. So they had the Jesus collab and then they also had the Satan collab, which is a you know pretty interesting uh, I think route to take. I mean, I guess it's pretty fitting. Maybe they dropped it around you know the Easter holiday, but. You know, I digress.
1: Yeah. Exactly, and that's why I think this is such a sophisticated plan because they clearly did it around this holiday with Lil Nas' video, uh, you know, on purpose to, to invoke uh, some sort of feelings in people <laughs> around right. that time. Exactly. And in 2019, they released the whole Jesus shoe, so it's right. sort of a yin and yang. Yes. And <laughs> I was just talking to my buddy about this because he was he was upset that Nike didn't sue them when they originally released the Jesus shoe. Right. Uh, and I was talking to him about statute of limitations and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at the same time, Nike sort of brought the Jesus shoe in uh, to this lawsuit mm-hmm. without, without naming it in the complaint, uh, so to speak. Right. Uh, the settlement even touches on the Jesus shoe and says, right. and makes Mischief admit that that one was done, you know, without their approval as well. So it's crazy, a lot going on, but Mischief clearly planned this and, you know, clearly had a good strategy.
0: Hey, well, I mean, you know, maybe there is something to say about being notorious, if you will. And being mischievous, yep. Mischievous. <laughs> I like that. Totally agree. <laughs> All right, Zach, so we've run through the claims and the different elements, uh, you know, thereof, but we were pretty surprised to see that this case actually settled and it really didn't really, you know, go to blows and, you know, no, they really... Seem to get off mischief. I'm speaking of really seem to get off with much more of a slap on the wrist than uh, you know what we probably really see it. See, it seems you know this Wall Street article that I'm reading now, and uh, a statement from Nike that mischief has agreed to initiate a voluntary recall to buy back any Satan shoes and Jesus shoes for their original retail prices, and also to remove them from circulation. Now that doesn't mention any monetary damages. Uh, is this? typical for these type of cases?
1: Yes, so as you know, most cases settle. Uh, the, the case that was very similar to this, or not similar to this, but the one that made the most headlines recently this past December was the Warren uh, Lotus case right. versus Nike, mm-hmm. and that one settled, but in that one, we were able to get a little more, a little more flair, a little more <laughs> a yeah. little more action out of it before it settled. Uh, they actually they had the hearing for the pre- preliminary injunction and we are able to see you know, more arguments, actually, from Warren Lotus's side and, and Nike's side. But this one, we really only saw, I think it was like a letter uh, and some oral argument right. for mischief. And that was it. Uh, and then the TRO got granted uh, in favor of Nike. Mm-hmm. And that was literally just having mischief hold the one sneaker. <laughs> that was it. Right. So <laughs> because mischief acted so fast, it sort of threw everything off here. Mm. Uh, and, 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 and then made Nike, you know, have to, in my opinion, almost settle this quicker because the only thing they could get at the end of this is, is damages. The shoes right. are already out, you know, the most they could get is some money. And when they do have trademark infringement, there's an option to get triple damages, treble damages mm-hmm. uh, if it's willful or intentional. Mm-hmm. And clearly, in my opinion, this was willful, this was intentional. The fact that they shipped it out faster would, you know, even be a fact that it, it would play in
0: Absolutely. It would
1: play that favor, in my opinion, right? Right. So. Uh, so, yeah, there, I think there's got to be some monetary settlement by Nike, hopefully. If not, then they look really bad. Because yes. of a voluntary recall of a shoe that's on eBay right now going for... <laughs> so I Look, I'm looking at about $3,000. I see. And <laughs> listed for $20,000. Wow. So there's no one... Who's going to send it back? I don't think anyone no. will send it
0: back. No, That's certainly a collector's it, item.
1: Yeah, oh. and the way they made it, and I think these are facts that would favor uh, mischief cases, uh, the way could you have to get a shoe is, you have to download the Mischief app, mm-hmm. and you go on the app and you get it through their app, their own proprietary app. Mm-hmm. So if you're gonna do that, you at least know what Mischief is. You know, right. Most people aren't gonna download an app and randomly do all this stuff without having knowledge or at least looked up this kind of stuff. Exactly. Uh, so so it, it's a crazy case. In my opinion, I would like to see it get a little further because the facts here are interesting. They're, they're different than Warren Lotus. They're not as favorable as what I would have liked for a custom sneaker mm-hmm. uh, case. Uh, You know, sort of just stretch the limits and see where we're going. Right. But I was hoping for a little more. So it was interesting. And in my opinion, the settlement definitely, you know, made Nike look weak to to everyone. And I mean, a voluntary recall, come on. Right. It's crazy.
0: Yeah, they they seem to, you know, get out, you know, with just a slap on the wrist, you know, from, you know, what I've seen in, you know, a few trademark cases. Like you said, the treble damages, I mean, that'll, that'll, that'll sink your ship.
1: Exactly, and this is a clear situation where I should have been, so I'm hoping Nike has something. It definitely had to get something out of it, not just this voluntary statement. Because I actually read the email earlier today, earlier today that was mm-hmm. announced to the people, and even the email is, is written like they don't even care. It's just like, hey, we, Nike told us to do this. They even wrote it for us, and we're just pressing it. It's pretty bad.
0: Right. Maybe at the end of the day, it's free marketing, you know? I mean, yeah. hey, crazier things bad. have happened.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And that's really what this whole thing is. I think it was just a crazy expensive marketing thing for mischief, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Exactly.
0: <laughs> so after the case settled, uh, Nike, through its attorney, you know, made another statement that these shoes were never about making money. Mischief made these shoes to, to make a point about how crazy collaboration culture has become. Now, we all know that the collab culture is crazy. Everybody has a new shoe they drop almost every single week it seems like uh you know if that you know it, it goes from you know the the more major designers uh to the streetwear brands uh some of the more uh consistent ones to some of the more you know ever-emerging ones now zach how exactly in european has the collaboration culture taken off recently
1: yeah you hit the nail on the head in the past 20 years it's taken off uh I hate to say back in my day because it makes me sound old. But <laughs> back in my day, I remember when Supreme was you know, just a streetwear brand. Right. Like Juicy uh, and you know, just like all the other ones. And it wasn't as big as it was today. And Supreme was going out there and actually infringing on other companies. They, they, mm-hmm. I think it was 2005, 2007 that they made a uh, Louis Vuitton shirt. I remember on that. Sent them cease and desist. Yeah, I remember right. that. So I remember that. It was only 15, 16 years ago that streetwear and high fashion were afraid of each other. They didn't want to collab. But here we're seeing a total reversal of that, and it's the exact opposite. Streetwear and high fashion are collabing, and they're doing it more than ever. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's cool. I like it. It's, it's, you know, it's why I'm in the industry and why I do what I do because it's getting bigger, and there's, you know, more partners involved, and there's more people involved, and it's really interesting.
0: Yeah, it really is. Now, we like to, you know, paint a picture uh, here at Athlegal Ease and sort of break down you know, how exactly some of these inner workings really work. And so with the Lil Nas X Mischief Nike case, we see how you do not do a collab. (laughs) For the record, this is not how you do a collab. You see what, you know, you really get yourself into. Now, we've seen other instances where collabs are really done right. And in honor of the Jordan 1, uh, which came out April 1st of 1985, we like to talk a little bit about the Virgil Abloh collab with the Nike One and how exactly they were able to make that happen. Now, Zach, can you break down exactly what sort of agreement would be necessary in order for a collab like this to play out legally?
1: Yeah, so, exactly, I think it's a great one to, to point to. Uh, one of the best shoes to come out in the past you know, year or two. Uh, We'll go with, the, I guess, the high-top Jordan 1, yeah. Virgil Off-White. Mm-hmm. That one, it's, so what happened was uh, Virgil, uh, big fan of Nike, and finally got to work with them, and when they did, they were able to combine everything that Virgil wanted with his Off-White brand, mm-hmm. uh, with Nike, and usually Nike doesn't give that creative freedom uh, to, to anybody, or right. to, to people to do what Virgil did, uh, right. to essentially deconstruct Nike's famous swoosh, so that in itself was a big deal. Uh, so once, once Virgil got to do that, the collab was set, he was able to do what he wanted to, you know, get his, uh, creative freedom. Uh, so when they, when they made the deal, the main thing that they have in any collab is IP ownership, uh, or mm-hmm. again, ownership of specific rights. Uh, and in this situation, uh, with, with the Virgil's collab was a little different than, you know, the, uh, the Lil Nas collab. Cause in that, you're, you know, you're getting your IP ownership in Lil Nas's name and, uh, you know, Mischief and Little nods. That, that was between them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're able to use the acting ownership there. Right. With the Virgil and Off-White collab, they're just using Off-White's name. So it's a licensing agreement to, you know, uh, for Nike to own the actual shoe. Of course, Nike's going to want to own everything. Right. <laughs> and there's going to be some sort of licensing agreement uh, to have them work together. To say, you know, Nike is allowed to sell this shoe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Virgil gives permission to have these Off-White trademarks on the shoe without student for infringement. Right. So the most important thing there is tying up the the ownership and the licensing and, and the uh, opportunities there. Okay. And once you do that, it's really just about breaking it down into royalties and you know how mm-hmm. much each side makes and that really depends on the on the designer. Right. Smaller designers clearly won't get as much weight uh, as a big designer like Virgil who, right, you know, could probably make royalties and all that. Whereas, I mean, I've seen some stuff, uh, some you know, smaller designers where they'll do a collab with Nike and Nike won't even give them royalties; they'll give them. Two hundred shoes, or not even that, twenty right, shoes. Right, right. <laughs> make it a limited release. Some change, exactly. So do what you want sell for twenty bucks. Sell them for two thousand bucks. Right, so you all you get. Uh, so, so yeah, I guess those are the two main areas, you know, that the, the artist would be worried about is money and royalties, and mm-hmm. how to make sure his expressive content is, you know, able to do what he wants. Right. And I get scared about really owning the IP and owning the shoes in the totality.
0: Okay, so what we're really saying here is, you know, there's a licensing agreement in place. And essentially, what a licensing agreement allows is for the proprietor of the intellectual property rights here, Nike, for an example, to license out the rights uh, in a limited scope to you know an individual. So here, a Virgil Abloh, you know, they license it out. He can use it, you know, very limitedly, uh, you know, basically under the terms of the agreement from something that they negotiate. Um, and then, of course, you're going to have to get the royalties out of that. Um, And at the end of the day, Nike then still owns that that product. So it almost turns into maybe a work for hire sort of situation.
1: Yeah, exactly. In regards to the ownership, you're exactly right.
0: Okay. Now that's all we got, folks. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Zach Kurtz, the sneaker attorney out of New York City. He broke down a big issue for us, a big legal case issue uh, involving Nike and Mischief products. So be sure to check that out. Like, subscribe, leave a comment, leave a review, and go ahead and hit that five-star rating for us. We would really appreciate that. And that's all the time we have tonight, guys. So be sure to check us out, follow Zach online, and we'll catch you next week. Peace.